This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Soros. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode has been called the godfather of small cap absolute return investing. His name's Eric Cinnamon, and from 1998 to 2016, he ran a strategy that handily outperformed the 8% per year of the Russell 2000 index. But what's most impressive about this is he did so with an average allocation to cash of about 40%. So his equity-only returns were roughly twice that of the Russell 2000 index. Numbers that make even Gordon Gecko jealous. I really used the opportunity to dig into his process to find out how did he generate these types of returns? What uh, does his quarterly routine look like? How does he value companies? Uh, But we also talk about how difficult it is to be different in the current environment and what he thinks of the current environment. But I don't need to talk it up anymore. Um, Please enjoy my chat with Eric Cinnamon. Eric, welcome to the show. It's... uh, I've been really excited to have you on. I've been reading your blog for the last several months and just almost everything you post, I've literally just thought, oh my God, this guy's reading my mind. So I, you know, I, I got to get, get this guy on the podcast. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about some of the topics that you've written about recently. But uh, first, um, I'd love to know, how, how did you get in the business in the first place? Was it something you were interested in for a long time? Um, do you study finance in college? Or I did. How, how did I went to Stetson University and uh, they had a program there called the Rowan George Investment Program where the students invested uh, some of the school's money. And uh, it's kind of rare. So that was 89 through 93. And, um, and that's how I got my start. And I started it in a bank right after 1993 in a, in a trust department. And uh, and then that, and that's how I got got in the investment world and in the in personal trust department. Gotcha. So that uh, and then from the trust department, you how did you move into the mutual fund um, side of the business? Well, First Union bought out Evergreen Funds, and that, that's when I got my first start in the mutual fund business. Was Evergreen Funds was in purchase in New York, and my my old boss met. One of the founders at the Evergreen Funds, and and they hired me as a small cap value manager, or analyst. I eventually became a co-manager, and that was in 1996. So that was my first break to, to get into the industry. Uh, and it was small cap. Uh, were you in small cap before that mainly, or was it was it? No, kind of you know what? Banks they usually they usually have a, a buy list you have to stay pretty close to. So. It was sort of an index hugging type of a process, you know, 93, 96. So I was following a lot of names that, you know, were Intel, Microsoft, those kind of things. Um, you know, again, we're after buy up a buy list. So, so 96, 98, when I joined the Evergreen Funds, that was a, a small cap value fund with a, a dividend tilt, which was very interesting. And those were more mature businesses that generated enough cash flow to to provide dividends, and we bought convertible bonds as well. So that's where I started to form my possible buy list, which today is about 300 names. And those are more mature 
operating businesses that generate free cash flow. So that was really derived from my beginnings in that equity income fund in 96, where these, again, are mature companies generating dividends. So it's a very unique fund because um, most people think about small caps. They think of go-go funds and, you know, up 15, 20 percent a year. But these were pretty mundane companies that uh, grew more in line with nominal GDP, you know, not necessarily startup small caps. So, you know, and then, and then people think, too, another thing people think is small caps are, are kind of startups. But there's a lot of niche industries out there that are, that are small cap businesses, small cap industries. They're just smaller industries. You know, I always like to use oil dry, the market leader, cat litter as an example. But, you know, cat litter is not a um, it's not a large industry, but the business itself generates a lot of cash and actually has a pretty good dividend. So actually, that's when I started following oil dry or originally bought oil dry was in 1997 and, and still follow it today. Well, it seems generally like, you know, um, in, in my experience, it's a little easier to find value in small cap because they're, you know, out of a lot of guys' purview. They just can't look at a lot of that stuff. So, um, but was that, was that the mandate of the fund was, was, uh, was small cap income? Yeah, they had to have a dividend. So, uh, that was a really unique niche for me, but again, that sort of led me towards more mature businesses. And another thing I liked about that was, you know, these were sort of perpetual bond companies, um, and again, very mature. So that's when I started tilting towards companies I could value with a high degree of confidence. You know, sort of again, those perpetual bonds, going back to an oil dry, you know, that's the type of business. The variation in its free cash flow just doesn't change much year to year. You know, it's kind of a uh, a 10 to 14 million dollar a year free cash flow uh, business, and then you can value those perpetual bonds, our perpetual equity as a perpetual bond uh, with a high degree of confidence. So one of the things of the strategy of the, the, that I eventually developed was uh, really trying to limit mistakes. And if you buy these companies with consistent free cash flows, they're really they're easy to value. You know, it's hard to mess up on the valuation. And where you tend to mess up is overpaying, you know. So, yeah. uh, but the, the valuations themselves are not that difficult. Again, thinking of something like an oil dry, you can see historical cash flow cycles. You know, you, you can see them for decades. Uh, you know what impacts their margins. You know, in oil dry's case, you know, one of the biggest variables is natural gas. Uh, that's what they use to dry the clay. And, um, you know, the gross margins will fluctuate from, say, 22 percent to 30 percent. But a lot of that is, is the input cost. But you can see that over time, what it impacts that. And then you can get a good feel for uh, the margins to expect from the business. And then you can get a good feel for normalizing that cash flow. And also you can get a good feel for the risk of the business and what you demand as an investor in absolute return. And then there you have your, your perpetual bond valuation. You know, when you value a perpetual bond, it's very simple. It's just a coupon over the discount rate. Well, that's the same thing I like to do with these small cap companies, these mature businesses that, that generate consistent cash, is I'll use, you know, something like an oil dry. You can use, uh, you know, that maybe a 12 million normalized cash flow and then a, a discount rate, which is your required rate of return. And, you know, I'll use a 10 to 15 percent discount rate. And we'll talk more about that, how we come up with that and then subtract the growth rate. What's nice about these companies as well is, is the growth rates are 
fairly easy to determine as well because if you're a mature business that's been in you know business for decades, you're, you're usually growing more in line with uh, nominal GDP. You know, these aren't you know, cat litter is not going to grow 15, 20 percent a year. Let's hope not, or we'll be overrun with cats. You know, it's more right. in line with with household formation. Uh, so these are growth rates that are you know, typically two to five percent. You know, nothing too aggressive. Uh, right. But again, that's, that's another way to limit mistakes is not trying to speculate on growth rates. Uh, just you go say, with the companies me, that grow more in line with with the economy. Yeah, let, let, you said a few things there that uh, um, all kind of revolve around one thing. I thought of the you know quote. I, I can't remember if it's Buffett or Munger, but they say you know. We're not trying to be really smart. We're just trying to not be stupid, you know, exactly. which is, I think, a good way to think about investing is to try not to make stupid mistakes. If you can avoid those, you're, you know, you're way ahead of the game. And that's um, exactly right. But, so we've had, you know, one of my favorite slides in a, in a recent presentation was, was the batting average of, of the strategy since 1998. And, you know, the batting average was around 85%. And people say, wow, that's really impressive. And then they'll see all the – I list every stock that we've made money in every stock where I've lost money. And But I'll say, but listen, uh, not all of these were, you know, two, three, five baggers. You know, they're more 20 to 40 percent winners. And then and, – but on the flip side, the losers weren't, weren't big losers either. So you can have a high batting average, not have spectacular upside. You know, and you shouldn't with these companies because – they shouldn't be so mispriced, right? If there's a perpetual bond with consistent cash flows and it's you can value them in a high degree of confidence, they shouldn't be mispriced by, you know, 50, they shouldn't be 50 cent dollars. But if you can get an 80 cent dollar in a really good business and you can compound that, you know, over several years and that return adds up well, but the only way you can make that adequate return on a portfolio uh, is not make a lot of mistakes. You know, I can't have these these large losses. So also on that slide, you know, the, the two losers I did have, the two largest losers were 50% losses approximately. But I had two, you know, over over uh, 18 years. You know, that that's okay. It's, you just can't have these huge permanent losses of capital. Uh, those are, can be just devastating in long-term performance. Right. And, and um, so what, I, what I'm kind of hearing is what differentiates your strategy is more of a focus on risk and avoiding mistakes. Is that, is that how you would put it? Uh, most definitely. But, but at the same time, you know, I'm sometimes accused of being a perma bear, which I'm not. I was fully invested or very aggressively invested in 09. But um, you have to take risk when getting paid, right? So I think every cycle there's been a period where you were getting paid to take risk. So it's not it's it's great to not make mistakes, but you can't always be you know <laughs> defensive throughout an entire cycle. Uh, every cycle has its time to get aggressive that you're getting paid. Sure, but it's it's waiting for those uh, opportunities where you know it makes sense to take the risk because the potential reward outweighs it. Uh, you know, I just think that it's so different. It's so refreshing to hear something like this because the focus on risk is just, you know, if there is any focus on risk today, it's focus on three-year beta. It's focus on five-year beta, <laughs> right. which, you know, right. in, in today's world, you know, what's happened the last three, five years? Nothing, you know, well, so that's right. well, no you have no a three-year beta. Right. For, right. for so long, we, we've sort of forgotten about it, but, um, 
I, I definitely and risk I, is I, thinking I about the forgotten about the risk. I think that this periods like the, it's periods like today. This is when investors make their biggest mistakes, right? It's not in March of 2009. You know, it's 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 in 2007. It's in 2016, 2017. This is when we screw up, right? When it just appears nothing can go wrong. I, I was on Yahoo Finance yesterday, and there's an article pretty much saying that that nothing can go wrong right now, and now's a great time right. to invest. But this is exactly when when most people make mistakes. Um, so well, it's it's the they start ex- extrapolating. You know, it's the same thing with that three year beta. You you extrapolate that three year beta indefinitely in the future, and as soon as you everybody starts extrapolating, is the worst time to actually start extrapolating that stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, so I'd love to. Um, you know, you're known as an absolute return guy. In fact, that's the name of your blog, right? Absolute return return investing. Yeah, um, pretty original. That, well, you know, but I mean. You know, it's it's. Uh, I think it says a lot about how you how you think about risk. Uh, you know, in, in just understanding what absolute return is. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and, and how that how that uh, what that means to you? Well, as far as risk goes and absolute returns, you know, for me, you, know, you talk about beta and, and people view risk as beta volatility, and I'm not the only person that has said this, but obviously, from an absolute returns perspective. I, I hate losing money. You know, and one of the things when I was when I was managing money is one thing I hate losing mo- money more than my own money is I hate losing other people's money. Uh, so, it, and that all revolves around the price of assets, right? So, I mean, this is all obvious stuff. When you overpay, you're taking considerable risk, um, and that's to me the, the biggest risk in investing is overpaying. So. As I always say, you know, why overpay if you don't have to? And that that comes back to one of the core concepts of, of my strategy uh, or the absolute return philosophy. If you're not getting paid, don't take risks. There's no reason to take it. Why should I overpay? It's it's unnecessary. Uh, no one has a gun to my head. Uh, when I see my possible buy list trading at 2.2 times sales, I know these companies well, and I know historically they should trade at, at half of that. The valuation, and if I know uh, I can lose fifty percent of my capital by investing today, why would I do that with my own money or, or, or other people's money? Uh, and a fifty percent decline in small caps is not uncommon at the end of a cycle. The, back, the past two cycles, that's exactly what we've had. We've had forty to sixty percent declines. Um, and if you just get back to a, a normal sort of price to sales, uh, and I use that to sort of the, to smooth out the earnings cycle because that can be, uh, you know, when you talk about extrapolation, I think the earnings cycle, people <laughs> do a lot of the extrapolating. Uh, one of the most, I think, dangerous risk in investing is extrapolation risk, and I, and I know you touched on that in the past. Uh, so, so for me, risk is uh, one of the things I like to do is just avoid it. It's not necessarily, to, it's not necessary to take it. So why do it if you're not getting paid? So historically, my strategy, you know, since '98, I've been fully invested, and I've also had up to uh, 90% cash. And that, well, we, we talked about my time at Evergreen. Fast forward, uh, my time in 1996, and that's exactly the, the position I, I, I found myself in was, you know, 85, 90% cash. And as I like to say, the, the market put me in checkmate, and I felt if I were to get invested, I would lose people's money. Um, so, you know, the only alternative I, I really, the only decision I thought I could make would be to, to return the capital. And that had everything to do with risk and, uh, and, and an inadequate return. 
Yeah, so so basically, you know, you're focusing on trying to generate a positive return regardless of what the S&P 500 does. You're not you're not trying to focused on the index and trying to beat the index like 99% of active managers do. It's it's a different focus. Exactly. You know, relative return investing has, has taken over the industry and uh, it's one thing I try to do throughout my career was was being an alternative to that. Um but I, you know, I have not succeeded <laughs> relative return investing. I think it's taken over, and now we have the passive investing uh, craze. So uh, it's interesting. You know, I think our industry, the asset management industry, is this sort of, you know, it's sort of trapped. Um, it seems it's really over the time has gravitated more towards relative return investing. You know, sort of that that uh, focus on the indexes. Uh, but what happens when everyone does that is no one's different, right? And then what the industry has done to itself, I think, because so few are willing to be different that, you know, if you're not going to be different, why not buy an index fund, right? I mean, I don't think passive investing is necessarily a good idea right now. But if I was to choose between a closet index or a passive fund, I would probably buy a passive fund. Well, just to, you know, saving the fees, you know, why pay a guy to tweak, tweak the 500 stocks, you know, exactly it makes no sense. Um, but you, you know, you've, you've kind of hinted at a couple things too, you know, about, uh, you know, you hate losing money, but you hate losing other people's money even more. And I, I think that's another rare quality on wall street. I don't think, you know, a lot of people are focused on, on that. And, you know, cause what, well, you know, it's essentially all these funds and, you know, uh, the ETF boom that we've seen is, is all about generating fees, you know, for Wall Street, regardless of what happens to the people buying them. You, you wrote a, uh, a blog post recently that um, I tweeted it and it really, really resonated with a lot of people. It was, um, I think it was called Loyalty, Prudence and Care. And in that post, you um, essentially asked the question, you know, how do you exercise reasonable care? In, you know, managing people's money in an environment where, you know, it seems like it seems to be all risk and no reward. You know, what, how, how do you do that? And I think that's a great question. That a lot of people are wrestling with, um, you know, a lot of advisors and, you know, out there are wrestling with obviously not, you know, wall street and these guys, you know, creating a lot of the ETF products that are out there today. But, uh, I, there are, there are uh, you know, advisors out there trying to figure this out. How, I mean, what do you tell them? <laughs> It's a great question. You know, I, I was, uh, before I recommended returning capital back, I was going through my possible buy list of, of 300 small cap stocks and just, you know, I did it daily and I was on the weekends, you know, I was trying to find some way because, you know, this is an 18 year track record. I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop. You know, this is my dream job. I wanted to find some way to, to at least own enough equities to, to generate a positive equity, uh, absolute return or an adequate absolute return, but, but I couldn't do it because the valuation, the cycle, and this is what differentiates this cycle from past cycles or the past bubbles, you know, we had the bubble, the tech bubble and the housing bubble, but in those periods, you know, tech bubble, there was tremendous value in the tech bubble. It just was not in tech stocks. You know, there's a lot of mundane old economy businesses that were selling at very attractive discounts. You know, they were, they were at 10 to 12 times earnings the same businesses today are 30 times earnings, you know, for the same type of growth and, and same type of businesses. And then, of course, the, the mortgage boom and housing boom, that was a little broader overvaluation because that credit growth didn't just uh, benefit the banks, you know, the financial industry, that credit growth spilled over into the economy, you know, so you had, you had all that mortgage debt, uh, all, all the personal debt kind of spill over and, and 
and raise the, the earnings of a lot of companies and a lot of companies, cyclical companies too, were being priced on those peak earnings. Uh, so that was a broader overvaluation. That was a little harder. So my cash was, was considerably higher in those seven uh, before that, that bubble popped. Now this cycle is a cycle I've never seen before. Uh, you know, people often point to valuation metrics showing uh, how this is one of the most, if not the most expensive cycle in the history of the stock market. But I think what, what people don't talk enough about is the broadness of the overvaluation. And, you know, you look at that in the fixed income market, you know, junk bonds, you know, sovereign debt. Um, it, it's almost anywhere you go, you know, you, you, you can own private equity, but isn't everyone in private equity now? You know, I always talk about I can see myself in a, in a room full of uh, asset allocators and they're like, how do we get this efficient frontier to shift up and to the left? You know, and all you do is you, you find the, the highest return assets over the past few years and you just slap that in your model and then your efficient frontier moves up. And uh, then we wonder why small caps are trading where they are. Um, it's just such a broad overvaluation this cycle that uh, I think that's what makes it. And I was thinking, I was like, man, I'm having a hard time. I can't imagine being an advisor right now uh, or, or sitting on the board of a pension plan. I mean, what do you do? Your 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 duty is to get eight percent and do it, you know, as a prudent man. I mean, <laughs> it's just not. I'm sorry, it's not possible. Uh, not in my eyes, anyways. You're, you're taking considerable risk. And I think you'd be fortunate to, to break even, assuming you, you know, you know, over the next five, ten years, assuming you pay these type of prices to, at to, you know, today's prices and expect that eight percent. I think is, I mean, that is a challenge, and uh, I really, really feel sorry for anyone in that position. And you know, to those people that are in that position, um, I'm not sure what I would, what I would advise them, um, except you know, good luck, and, and it's not your fault. <laughs> it's, it's. Uh, yeah. Well, there's, there's, I've I've heard some interesting, you know, thoughts on the matter. I mean, obviously. Uh, you know, it sounds like from your blog, you know, you've mainly just gone to cash and, and you know, exercising patience, you know, for an opportunity. And that's kind of, you know, the, uh, you know, what absolute return methodology requires you do right now. But for, for a lot of people, you know, it's say, hey, I don't want to lose my job, right? If I tell you that's to right. go to cash and then I'm still, you know, I, I still want to earn a living. Um, you know, then I've also heard Seth Klarman say, you know, you don't pay me to hold cash. You pay me to know when to hold cash, <laughs> you know, right. which is also another, another interesting way to look at it. But it's, it's really a major dilemma right now, I think, for people who understand the current environment. And, um, you know, you, you've mentioned uh, a few times, so you have about 300 stocks you've been following. And, uh, I, I read a, I think a recent interview with you and you said among those 300, you've never seen them so highly valued as they are today. Is that right? Yeah. And that's, again, it goes back to the, the broadness of the overvaluation, you know, in, in the last two bubbles, again, like I, I was finding some value. I remember in 06, 07, I can buy utilities. There was places or, or even things like oil dry, you know, the smaller cap names were less, were less overvalued or less expensive. I could find some value there. But again, you look at this cycle, you know, utilities are outrageous. You, you have water utilities trading at three times book value. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, these companies uh, are allocated. I mean, they're, they're able to generate a certain return on their equity, you know, usually maybe 9%, and that's declining with low rates. Uh, you're paying three times book for that. I, I mean, you're locking in a sort of a 3% allowable ROE. And I've never seen anything like that, you know, in, in utilities, those type of valuations. And that goes back to just, I think, this investing in groups. I think money just flows into these groups without any real thought 
about what, what they're paying. I think when people buy a utility ETF, I don't think they're thinking that I'm paying three times book for some of these utilities. I think they're just thinking I need a five, 10% allocation utilities. Um, and, well, yeah, I've, I've seen, you know, some of the, uh, the low volatility ETFs are some of the most popular and the, their largest sector allocation is utilities. So, you know, people are just, you know, throwing money at this stuff and, and it just pushes prices. But because they know, well have, beyond, but you talked about beta, but they've historically been, you know, low, low volatile assets. But I, and I've written about this a lot too. One of the things that differentiates this cycle is how quality and low volatility type of historically low volatility investments have gotten so expensive. And I think that goes back to sort of the low risk-free rates where some of these high quality equities are being priced as, you know, almost risk-free uh, long-term perpetual bonds, which, which they're not. So historically, yes, they've been much less volatile, but given the price people are paying for these high quality investments, I think in the future, you could see much different volatility metrics than you see you've seen in the past yeah it's fascinating right because they they start once they become price like bonds now they start taking on greater interest rate risk exactly. in addition to the, exactly the business right. risk and the default risk right. so you're just so, throwing so, risk on that's top of risk exactly right so you you originally buy the business with with thinking about the business risk you get a good feel for that well wouldn't you know it when all this cycle ends what gets you is duration risk. <laughs> you just don't think about right. that, you know, as an equity investor. But that could be what eventually uh, causes significant losses in high quality businesses. You know, is another fascinating um, thing to think about too. And I, I think you brought it up in this uh, piece that you wrote for uh, was it Value Investor Insight? And, and I'll link to that in the in the notes to this to this show. But I think you mentioned, you know. The valuations are, in so, are are far higher in you know small cap uh, you know and the way that I I uh, look at this is you know the median price to sales ratio um, on the S and P five hundred is fifty percent higher than it's ever been in history. So you know, that the, the the pervasiveness of the overvaluation is so high, and in small caps you know obviously that's where you know they're getting the distortions are probably most obvious. Um, but you you talk about some you know liquidity risk in these things you know right they're they're not nearly as liquid as the S and P five hundred. No question, and and I think the passive investing and ETF investing is going to amplify that risk. And I don't think we know how that is going to unfold. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked with small caps now for over twenty years, and I don't think you really, without experiencing that bid disappearing, I don't think a lot of investors appreciate liquidity or, or the difficulty in trading some of these stocks. You know, if you have a, a $5 million position in a, in a $200 million business, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but try to get out, you know, in one day. <laughs> and, and that sounds, you know, like maybe that wouldn't happen, but if, if a, a whole group of ETFs owns 30% of a $200 million company and they have a 10%, you know, 20% outflow. That's what we're going to see. And, and the bids will disappear. And, you know, working with small caps for so long, I've seen the bids disappear. And I remember in 08 buying, uh, and I remember the broker or, or, or the trader asking my limit. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, there isn't a bid, so you decide. <laughs> there wasn't a market. <laughs> the bid disappeared. And uh, we were the only buyer. And that was awesome. 
because you could pick your price because there were such large sellers that they didn't they were so price insensitive they had to sell you know they had to sell that day and i think that's what what we may see and i think one of the next great opportunities will be is when these passive funds get those outflow tickets and you know as a, as a fund manager you get it you get it uh, every day you get an email with your inflows and outflows and for me that was okay because i had you know i had a cash buffer i didn't have to sell that day i could go gradual the passive funds don't have that option right when they get the outflow ticket it has to be sold that day. And if you're talking about an illiquid stock, and even if it's a liquid stock, if there's enough passive investors needing to get out that day, and remember, passive investors now make up the, the largest holders of these of these equities. And if they all have to sell the same day, they all get the same tickets, who, who's who's going to buy, right? I'm not. I'm going to wait for much lower prices. Before. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that we've never seen before. No, and, it, and, and it's, it's not an like there's point. a um, – there's not a um, – there's not margins of safety now, right? We're so far away from fair value in a lot of these stocks. Uh, a lot of value investors are going to wait, right? They're not going to buy the, the first little dip. And I remember, was it 2016 we had a small decline? In, um, 20, August 2015 is, was the last was a, decent one, I think. Is that when you shaved your or beard? Jan, in January. January, yeah, I shaved my beard in August 15. That's why I'll never forget that one. Uh, but then we sold off again January 16. Okay, so I remember that, and I remember starting to add to positions uh, in that little sell-off. But prices were nowhere near where they needed to be for me to get aggressive. So um, when you get to these levels, when you get to 2.2 times sales on a, a possible buy list, it does. You know, you don't start buying at two times sales, right? I mean. And plus, if you look at the earnings cycle where we are, you know, earnings margins are so high right now. If you normalize, that's another um, that's another issue investors will have is the next recession. Assuming we have a market soft in the next recession, you know, that PE does a funny little thing when earnings fall. So uh, right. it's going to be extreme. I, I, you know. Look, I'm all cash now. I'm not managing money, but I'm so curious how this cycle ends. And I just think it's going to be so fascinating. Um, and I think the opportunities are going to be wonderful. I just I have no idea when. And that's one of the reasons I, I recommend returning capital is acknowledging this, that that this cycle is so different. Uh, it really is different in many ways. And uh, the, the timing of it is, you know, I'm a horrible market timer. I just I don't know when the cycle ends. And um but I think it's going to be really neat. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, it's 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 fascinating. We talk about passive ownership, and you're one of the first person, uh, you know, people I've I've read to talk about that. You know, the risk to you know, if you are selecting individual securities, you know, you have to look at that right? as as was the passive ownership here because. That could potentially create more risk than you know just uh, you would see in a normal sell-off. So I, that's something that's fascinating to think about. You also, I think, talk about in another piece that I read, um, you know, discount rates, right? That's you know we're talking about extrapolating. You know, investors are extrapolating low interest rates way out into the future, not just you know peak of the profit cycle potentially out into the future they're extrapolating not to mention you know sec secularly you know huge uh, profit margins right, <laughs> you know, right. off the charts they're extrapolate that in the future but extrapolating low interest rates way out in the future too and in through their their discount model so i i, I want to kind of dig into you know your 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 process no that's but that, uh, that's right so you think about um you know what buffett said recently that you know kind of valuations make sense with if interest rates with, with interest rates is slow i mean 
with all due respect, I mean, I just disagree with that. I think interest rates are artificially set. And they don't make a lot of sense to me. And I think valuing a perpetual risky business uh, with your foundation being uh, risk-free rates, I think, is uh, asking for trouble. You know, you're you're gonna your your starting point on on a on a, a volatile cash flow value of volatile cash flow is going to be two percent. Uh, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me. So what I've always done is I want to know, you know, I like to think of myself as a credit analyst. And then what I'll do is I'll determine a required rate of return on the debt if I was the lender of the business, and then I apply a risk premium to that. So so, so then you come about it from a different angle where you're not reliant on a very volatile, you know, risk-free market, you know, in setting your required rate of return. Because, I mean, you know, if, if the 10-year treasury goes from 2% to 5%, you know, you can lose a considerable amount of, uh, you know, we go back to the duration risk of equities. You know, you can lose a considerable amount of money there by just being wrong on the bond market. And you never intended to make a bet on the bond market. Right. You're, you're trying to buy the equity at a discount. So, yeah, well, you know, I th- the discounted cash flow model is, you know, one of the easiest things to manipulate oh, to get a price target that you want. Right. You know, it's, I, I think, you know, Cliff Asnes, you know, uh, pointed out that it's, you know, Incredibly disingenuous to lower your discount rate without lowering the growth rate, exactly. right? Which is what That's which exactly is what investors right. are doing today. Is you know if you're going to have low interest rates for a long time, exactly. there's no way in hell those companies are going to grow as fast as they have in the That's past. Right. So you have that, to also that is a, value, that's a common valuation mistake where people determine a discount rate, a low discount rate, but they don't adjust the growth rate. You know, if I use a discount rate of 10 percent and my growth rate's nine percent, I'm capitalizing one dollar. Uh, to be a hundred times earnings, right? I mean, so you can, as analysts and managers, we can come up with any valuation we want, right? It's really easy. You can tweak your growth rate, tweak your discount rate, tweak your cash flow you see rate. Analysts do it all the time, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, right. So the sell side analysts can always make their price targets the price of the stock. It's just it's extremely simple, but they'll usually use a multiple. But the, all the multiple really is. Is the combination of of the growth of your discount rate and your growth rate? I, I really can't agree more about that. The the discount rate and the growth rate do not exist in a vacuum. Um, if one is very low, the, you should probably think about the other one being very low as well. So so back to, to what I do is that that sort of you know I'll lend to a small cap business that's sort of six to eight percent, and then I apply you know a four to six percent. Um, risk premium to that. And that's where I get that 10 to 15% required rate of return for the equities. And historically, that's sort of what I've done, you know, so uh, actually probably on the high end there, but I've held so much cash in certain periods of, of market cycles, you know, the total return is, 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 down, is lower than that, but it's still, you know, so pretty, pretty attractive returns over, over a cycle, but there'll be certain periods during the cycle where I look like a complete idiot. You know, I remember in 1999, I was down, I think, like eight percent, and uh, in the tech bubble, <laughs> and that was my worst year, uh, worst absolute. Well, if you owned value then, you, yeah, that that was a problem. Oh, that, to, yeah, that was a value guy at the end of that. Bubble. Right, I was buying companies that make sewage pumps and <laughs> cat litter. Uh, that didn't work very well when, when people were buying technology stocks, but. Uh, yeah, but it worked tremendously well over the next few years right. when you know the Nasdaq bubble popped and then the money you know seemingly flowed out of those those things and into value, which had an awesome year in two thousand. Yes, that's so. right. So so there was so much there was so much value in the tech bubble 
that once the tech bubble popped, uh, which was nice, right? There, you actually could make money in a bear market. Um, and that's another thing that's very different this cycle. I don't, I mean, we talked about the advisors and, and the broadness and overvaluation in a lot of asset classes. I think that's the biggest challenge for advisors right now is not only where do you go to, to try to get that 8%, but where are you going to go to avoid the losses when this cycle ends? I mean, that is, that is going to be extremely difficult. Um, and I, w- I wish everyone the best in that. But and so, so the only, only thing I could think of was just stepping away, you know, just saying, hey, nothing's making sense right right now to me. Evaluations are absurd. Uh, I think that sometimes the only option is to do nothing. And sometimes doing nothing yeah. seems like you're not doing anything. But actually, it's a huge decision and um, very difficult one. And I think you know, I, I think it's a, a very important decision. But you, you don't know until the cycle ends if it's the right one. So you'll incur a tremendous amount of opportunity costs uh, for possibly years. You know, we don't know. Um, but if you can recoup that through better opportunities and say you get those, you know, 60, 70 cent dollars in the market uh, when valuations revert, then you can make that up very quickly. So I remember in 08, 09, it wasn't just protecting capital uh, that allowed me to catch up quickly. It was the opportunities that came up once the cycle ended, uh, tremendous opportunities in 08, 09. That's where you can catch up extremely quickly and surpass, you know, if you're in the relative investing, uh, surpass your benchmarks, which I'm not. But if you are, you can really catch up so fast, thousands of basis points quickly. Yeah. And, and that's just a function of having a discipline, right? That, that requires you to wait for those opportunities. But, but Jesse, um, most people can't do that, not just from an emotional standpoint, but many professionals have mandates. Uh, there's so many things that make it almost impossible for a lot of people. You know, I've, I've gotten a lot of emails from managers and analysts. They're like, man, I really I believe what you're saying. You know, I really appreciate it. But I just can't do it. <laughs> it's just not possible. Uh, so there really, there's a lot of investors, I think, that think like we do, sort of the absolute return mindset, but they're trapped in that relative world. And it's it's a shame. You know, I wish there was more. Uh, I wish the industry accepted the absolute return mindset more. But unfortunately, it's not, you know, as I've been told many times, it's not commercially viable. <laughs> well, absolutely right. Because, well, you know, I think trying to get people to do, you know, Think about, and this is another challenge that I think advisors are having today, which is trying to convince people absolute an absolute return process is the right thing to do right now, because they just see you know the Fang stocks going nuts, and wait, why don't I want to own these? And so trying to convince them of that is is probably incredibly difficult too. Um, so you know you uh, you know. Passive investing is all the rage today. You know, like you said, mo- most of these stocks are owned by passive investors. Uh, sometime this year, the money in passive strategies will overtake that in active funds. Um, so, being an active guy is, you know, uh, being contrarian, right? So then, being absolute return, you know, within the active space is contrarian within contrarian, right? right. right? So it's super it's super difficult to be a contrarian in any respect, but then also you know uh, being a contrarian within the industry, like you said, the, the industry is just not going that direction. Absolute well, return. So well, how many are left? Very, how many are left, Jesse? Did, have you looked at the Fidelity Contra Fund lately? <laughs> yeah, is it loaded with fangs? Yes, it is the Fang Fund. Um, I'm sorry for getting off topic. No, 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 that's fine. So you know. 
I guess it's, you know, being a contrarian in, in any sense is difficult. It's uh, challenging. You know, like, like you said, there's times where you just look stupid. How do you, you know, how do you deal with that on an emotional level? Oh, yeah, yeah that's something I just had to deal with very early. Um, just that willingness to, to look different. Um, and like you said, you, you have to be comfortable with looking stupid. Uh, you know, it's at, for, I remember my first cycle, the, the tech bubble, I didn't, I didn't cope with that very well. You know, I, everything I'd done prior to that in my career just worked out perfect. You know, I was, it was funny, you know, that sort of 93 to 97 when, when I started in the business, you know, we were in the midst of a, a very healthy profit cycle um, and everything I bought seemed to work out. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I thought I was smart and a great investor, but reality, I was just riding the wave of the profit cycle, you know, nothing, it was hard to mess up. Um, but then in, in 98, 99, the tech bubble hit and my world turned upside down. I went from thinking I was a genius. I could do no wrong to, you, you know, I thought my career was over. In fact, that's how I got my MBA was in, in 1999. You know, I thought my career was over. So I said, yeah, I might as well go to business school. This obviously isn't working. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> So that was hard on me. I, in fact, I was literally I lost a big patch of hair in the back of my head. It's called alpecia. And that was from the stress of that the tech bubble. You know, for about 18 months, I was everything I owned went down and, and everything tech went up. You know, I was down 8% and the NASDAQ was up, I think, 86% in, in 99. So uh, that, I think, was was by far the most difficult cycle for me because it was my first experience with – with looking so out of touch, you know, and just having such poor relative performance. And then the housing bubble, you know, it was still hard. Um, but then I had, I think, my process down and and, and I, I saw how the tech bubble ended and how you can do very well in this type of strategy. So then it became more of a, a less emotional, I think, and became more structured um, in my process. And I began, began to, to um you know, I, I think I followed it better. I think I did a better job in the second cycle uh, emotionally as well. And this last cycle was uh, and still is very difficult. But I think I'm, you know, I think I've managed it very well. And, and I think that was one of the reasons too that that allowed me to, to return capital, or recommend returning capital, is I was very confident in, in the ending of the cycle. You know, again, but the timing, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not. But I was very confident in my valuations, the process. And that absolute return mindset, but but as far as you know, the timing again, uh, no idea. But but I was okay with looking different. You know, I I think that just takes some time. You know, it, it, to look stupid just takes practice. I've, I've been very good at it. Every cycle, I've looked extremely out of touch and, and very unintelligent. But at the end of the cycle, you know, it, it, what's that saying? You know, I rather would you rather look like a, a genius before or after? the cycle. Um, I always pick after because that, that seems to work out better. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I think that willingness to be, look stupid is, you know, a, a requirement of being successful at almost anything. I, one of my first golf instructors told me, you got to be willing to hit a really bad shot, really embarrassing <laughs> shot in order to hit a good shot. Um, and you know, I, I know you, um, you know, play tennis and, and, and walk and, you know, the, the physical stuff, uh, you know, always helps me kind of, uh, get, you know, get away from the markets and get some mental, you know, regrouping. It's funny you bring that up. Um, 
uh, my analyst, he, when he started with me, uh, he was out of shape. And uh, so this was his first cycle. And of course, you know, QE3, you know, that was tr- that was a very difficult time for us. Uh, and he started to practice for a marathon. And a lot of that was was because of um, the stress of being his first cycle. And uh, it helped him, you know, that that physical uh, the, the, the running, uh, the, the fitness, he lost 50 pounds. It was in great shape. So, uh, wow. you know, when we shut down, I said, Hey, look, Joe, I mean, I'm sorry it ended this way. And I'm sorry, this was your first cycle, but Hey, look, you're in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some good benefits come from looking stupid, or at least you feel like you're stupid. Yeah. In, in um, every, at every peak of a cycle, I think I exercise more. Um, it's, it's probably the best thing you can do and you got to get away and the market is so noisy in periods like this where, where so much doesn't make sense. And if you try to make sense of it, you can almost start to obsess about it and it's just not healthy and, and getting away and exercise and going for walks, uh, you know, you know, go, go to the pound and get a dog. I mean, that's probably the best thing you can do right now and, uh, go for long walks. Yep. Yep. Um, that's the uh, that's the physical side of the routine, walking, tennis. Uh, I want to just, before we're done, quickly dig into what you have a, a quarterly routine. Obviously, if you're following 300 stocks, I mean, what, what is that? What does your quarterly routine look like? It must be insane. I can't imagine. How yeah. You keep up so, with so about a third of the quarter is done. And I just finished this. I did, I did a post recently of, of the possible violence, what I was seeing. Uh, a third of the quarter is done with, I call it maintenance research, and that's just going through all the quarterly re- uh, reports and conference calls and the names I follow. Um, and the other third is done doing in-depth portfolio research on names in the portfolio. And right now I don't have any, <laughs> so that's, that's a little okay. different. So that extra time, less yeah, work yeah I'm, I'm able to do more maintenance research. And the other th- third of the quarter, usually sort of in, in the quarter where there's, there's few earnings reports, that's usually when I do a lot of my screens and work on um, new possible buy ideas because names do come off the list and names go on. You know, I'm always trying to improve the possible buy list and some companies get bought out. So, uh, so that's how I spend my quarter. And, and, you know, I just finished up sort of the busy period. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll form my macro opinion through that possible buy list. You follow so many names, you get a good feel for all the different industries. And then you can learn about where we are in the profit cycle because I normalize profits. So it's very important for me to know, you know, if we're in the peak or the trough. So, so it just helps me, helps me normalize. So, um, so that following so many names, I found to be very beneficial in just knowing where we are in the economy. I always, I kind of joke, I'm sort of a bottom-up economist. Um, so it's it's really it's really helpful in again normalizing and and knowing where we are in the profit cycle, which for me is essential in getting that accurate valuation. Well, yeah, you know, I only came across your blog a few months ago, but uh, you know, just through the last two earnings seasons, it's been fascinating to read your thoughts on on those those macro uh, trends, you know, but coming from a bottom up, you know, perspective. So, uh, you know, I, I tell everybody, you know, even if it's just for that one reason to see what Eric thinks about, you know, where we are in these places, just because of what you're reading in your companies, it's, you know, makes makes it a well worthwhile to, to visit the blog. Yeah, so, and I, um, I actually put the, the commentary together, the management commentary that I find interesting that helps me form my macro opinion. It's usually like 30, 40 pages. So if anyone wants to email me and, and they can, and uh, I'm always happy to send those out. So uh, it's a long read, but every time, you know, if you read it, I think you'll, you'll get a good appreciation for uh, 
for the process, and I think you'll come away with getting a good feel for where we are in the economy. Yeah, just go ahead and add me to that email list. <laughs> I'd love to see that stuff. So, um, hey, uh, you know, thanks, man, for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. I think, um, you know, I'm just really grateful to be able to share your thoughts and expertise, you know, with my audience. And uh, really, uh, I'm just grateful to you for doing this. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jesse. And uh, thanks for your interest and uh, checking out my blog. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode. I really want to encourage everyone to check out Eric's website at ericcinnamon.com. That's uh, E-R-I-C, cinnamon with a D on the end, dot com. And on his site, he's got a box where you can sign up for email alerts to his posts. And for all kinds of notes, charts, etc. related to this episode, visit thefelderreport.com. I'll put up all kinds of fun stuff about Eric and, and what we talked about today there. So thanks for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high.